you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's word together. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for this beautiful day. We thank you for the time that you've given us, that we get to gather together as your people. We pray that you would uh, meet us in this place, that you would lead and guide and teach us. We pray that you would illuminate our our hearts and our minds, that you would show us uh, what you would have for us from your word. I, I pray that as we look at uh, a more difficult text this morning, that you would give us clarity, that you would help us to understand what it is you're teaching us and what it is you're showing us. We pray that we would see it more clearly. We pray that as, as we think on these things together, that you would be glorified, that we would see you and your greatness and your love for us and what it is you're doing, uh, what you're bringing to fruition in your plans, and that we would just rejoice in them. We, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I've noticed uh, recently uh, just different uh, conversations, uh, friendships, people that God has brought into my life at different times. And uh, thankfully, uh, I'm very thankful for it. It's God's brought just different people that are seeking, that are asking good questions, asking difficult questions sometimes. Uh, And and what I've noticed in some of these conversations is sometimes they'll, they'll ask something or their understanding about God or what they believe the Bible teaches or what it says. And then they'll kind of say things like, yeah, right. Like, and sometimes they'll say things that are completely against what the Bible says and then seeking for me to affirm what it is they were understanding. And sometimes that can be really difficult. Right. They're looking at you like, right, right. Like I got and you're gonna like, well, not exactly. Right. Like you want to be gracious and kind, but we also want to boldly proclaim what God has said and what his word tells us. And, it, and it's not for me to go, no, 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 I think that's OK or that's whatever. But to actually hold to what scripture says. And so sometimes those conversations can be difficult. I, I don't know about you, but, but for me, I, I don't go looking for confrontation. I don't normally go try to find people that want to argue about those things. I would rather kind of meet them and have those discussions together. And so sometimes that can be very difficult because here's what the Bible clearly says. And here's some things that are in error. And sometimes we have to speak to those things. And so uh, as we come to our text today in Acts, we're going to look at a couple things that are some more difficult passage. Uh, if you're new with us, you're visiting, or maybe you haven't been here for very long, or just, or maybe today's your first day. If it is, welcome. We're glad you're here. But we do what we uh, call exegetical preaching here, and, and the idea is we want to exegete or explain what the Scripture says and let God's word speak for God's word. And so, part of what we do in that, a conviction that we have, is that the Bible is God's word, and that it's all profitable for correction, rebuke, for teaching, for exhorting us. Uh, for making us uh, mature uh, men and women of, of God and what he would have us to be. And so we believe all of it is God's word. And so as such, we preach through books of the Bible. Uh, so right now, if you're visiting with us today, we're in a series going through the book of Acts. And so we're going to be at the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And we're working our way straight through the book of Acts. And one of the reasons we do that is that we believe the Bible is God's word. And if I were to just pick different passages at different times, there's probably some things I would skip or miss or leave out, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so when we go through books of the Bible, it makes us kind of come face to face with some truths that maybe we would rather skip or we don't want to have to wade into some more difficult texts. And and I say all that to say today's one of those texts. So we're going to look at today in Acts chapter five. I personally, I'm sure there's someone who's done it. I have not heard someone preach a sermon on Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11 that wasn't going through the book of Acts. 
I'm not saying they haven't done that, but it seems like it's usually because we're working straight through the book and that's what's next. And so now there it is, because there's some hard things here that that we need to wrestle with and we need to see. But what I want us to think about this morning as we go into this is there's some really important things here. And it is God's word and it is good for us. And there's some things that I think God wants us to see and is teaching us, even though it might be difficult on the surface. And so we do that each week and we're going to continue to do that. Let me just catch you up to where we are as we kind of wade into the deep waters of Acts chapter five this morning. We've just been working through this book, which Acts uh, tells us the spread of the early church. And so what it is, is it takes place from from A.D. about 30 right at Jesus's uh, death, resurrection, and then ascension. Right at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, he says, uh, go uh, be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go tell people what has happened, what it is that Jesus has done, what God has revealed to us in Christ and what Christ has done in his ministry and his life, and go tell people. And so that's what we see in Acts. The earliest followers of Jesus, there's about 120 at the beginning. They go out and they do just what Jesus tells them, and the church explodes. It goes from 120 to 3,000 in chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 4, we're up over 10,000 people. And that's kind of where we sit as we are here today as we look at it. And there's a great momentum or movement happening of the church. And so what we're going to get to and what we're going to see here is one of uh, Luke, the author of Acts, one of his summary statements. We looked at one of them a couple weeks back in chapter two. He has another one here at the end of chapter four, kind of summarizes this movement, this momentum, what's happening. But then we see a threat coming against the church that that threatens the very heart of what's happening and what God's doing. And then we see God deal with this threat and then we see what happens after. And that's kind of the outline of where we're going today. This this movement, the excitement of what's happening, the threat that comes, how God deals with it, and then how should we look at that? And so let's look at that passage together. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, this summary statement that Luke gives us. And so it says this. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common and with great power The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands or houses. They sold them and they brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so I'm just going to stop there for just a second. We see these different summary statements that Luke gives us in Acts, and he kind of summarizes everything that's happening. And he says here that all the people had this great unity, and they were together in all these ways, and they're caring for one another, and they're sharing their things. And it says in verse 33, uh, great power, they were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And we see something here in chapter 4 that we saw earlier in chapter 2, in this, this image that uh, Luke paints for us, that there's a great generosity that comes from understanding the gospel. Understanding the grace of God in your life leads to having this great generosity. We saw the same thing in chapter two. 
says they were going from house to house and they were meeting together and they were praying and they were studying the word and they were having these times and they were sharing all these things and caring for one another. Very similar kind of thing to what he says right here at the end of chapter four. And I think what he's leading us to is that when we see the grace of God and what he's done for us in Jesus, it leads us to understand that all that we have and all that we are is by grace. That we are not our own, that we belong to God, that he is the one that has done this. And he begins to give us this image of when that happens, it starts to infect everything in our lives, including our stuff. It says here that they were radically generous. They were selling their things. They were meeting needs. They were caring for one another. And nobody was too concerned about their own things anymore. And so when we get to this passage, it's interesting to me at different times in my life, I've heard different teachings and read different things on it. And I'll be honest, the overwhelming majority of what we get in chapter two and chapter four or in my experience of what I've heard is we try to explain this away. Oh, no, this seems kind of scary. Seems a little bit like communism. Oh, no, they're, they're sharing their stuff. That can't be what God intended. Let's figure out a way to explain that away. And so I'm not making a political statement at all. That's not at all what I'm going for. But what I want us to think about is what was driving them to see that, to have this connection, to care so much about people that they were willing to give their stuff up. And it's uncomfortable for us, I think. We live in a very consumer-driven culture. And everything that our culture says to us uh, everything that our culture disciples us to be, I don't know if you've ever considered that, but we're all discipled by everything around us all the time. Right? Our culture paints a picture of what the good life looks like. And overwhelmingly what it is, is you need a lot of stuff and you need a certain amount and a certain kind and certain brands and certain things to be happy. And we are inundated with that all the time. And so when we read of people selling all their stuff, to care for one another, it doesn't sit well with our culture. In a lot of ways, it can be very uncomfortable when we read that. We go, ooh, not sure about that. And so oftentimes it kind of, well, that's, they were trying to figure out what it looks like, and they didn't really know, and so this is just a time, and so we don't want to make that prescriptive. And I'm not saying that we need to sell all our stuff and share every bit of it. That's not at all what I'm getting at. But I want to think about the heart issue behind it that makes us push back on this, and the heart issue that was present here that they didn't mind at all selling all their stuff and caring for one another. There's some interesting studies that have been done. I remember reading one a couple years ago about uh, what do you need, um, your, your needs being met, and does greater wealth lead to greater happiness? That was the kind of study and what it said. And what this study concluded, it was like a two year long kind of this great big thing. And what they came up with is it doesn't matter uh, once your basic needs are met. You've got a roof over your head. You know where you're going to sleep. You have food to eat. That once that's met, really from there on up, there's no difference in your happiness. The more stuff you accumulate. And so what they said is, is whether you have $40,000 or you have $40 million, it doesn't really matter. There's only a negligible, negligible difference between the two. But yet we're bombarded with this lie that you need a lot more stuff to be happy. And yet here they go to the opposite extreme and they go, I don't need any of this. And I want to care for others more than I care for myself. And so they begin to sell their stuff and they begin to care for one another. And I want us to think about why that's the case. 
What was this momentum that was happening in the church? What's the connection of them caring for one another in this way and the great grace that was upon them all? And I think the the understanding that we need to get to is this this image of that all our stuff and all that we are is not our own. And we buy into this lie. The sinfulness of our heart says that all my stuff is my own. I don't know if you've ever considered that. Sin enters the world and the first sin takes us from making God the center of our lives. It's all about loving God and then loving people. That's the way Jesus summarized all the commandments. Love God and love people. It's the way we're made. But as soon as sin enters, we go, no, no, I'm going to make it all about me and I'm now the center and my stuff and what I want. And we go from outwardly focused to loving God and loving people to inwardly focused and it's all about me. And you see a lot of that uh, played out through the Bible and problems that arise over and over when we embrace that idea. But yet here, as they grow, grow in the grace of God and they see the graciousness of God and everything that he's done, suddenly they don't care about their stuff being their own. They care about loving people and caring for one another. And it gets kind of turned inside out. And I want us to think about why that we struggle with that so much. Why do we so readily buy into the idea in our culture that lots of stuff will make us happy? But if I have a new car and a certain house and I live in a certain place and I have the newest phone and all those things, that that'll make me happier. It won't. But yet we do that and we pretend like it will. Why? And I think part of the foundational problem that we have, one of the foundational lies that we believe is that our stuff is our own. If you've ever thought about that, but the, the stuff we have or the wealth we accumulate or the things that we've gotten, it's all mine. Is that true? You know, we use the New City Catechism here at the church. If you've been around the church for a while, it's printed in the bulletin every week. New City Catechism is a question for each week of the year. That's just a big uh, doctrinal truth that the Bible teaches us. And it's a way to teach those to your kids It's a way for you to learn it. It's a way for you to be versed in just some uh, solid biblical doctrine. And so we put a different question, the one that corresponds with each week. And so I go through that with my boys. Sometimes they've made a cool book out of it now that you can order on Amazon. It's like 10 bucks. It has all of them in there and it's done really well. And so we try to go through those because there's just some fundamental things that we need to understand. And when we come to this issue, it makes me think of the very first question in the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? The kid's answer is always shorter than the adult answer. They have two answers. The kid's answer, so my boys know this one well, what is our only hope in life and death? They say we're not our own, we belong to God. The longer answer is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what we profess in the very first big idea in the Bible is that we're not our own. That we belong to God, every bit of who we are, right? Romans 14, Paul says, whether we live, we live to the Lord, or whether we die, we die to the Lord, but we're his. And I want you to think about that on a a bigger scale and how it pertains to the things that we call our stuff, the things that we try to hold on to. You know, all we do, all we are, all we accomplish, your mental Faculties, how smart you are, how innovative you are, if you can start a business, all those things, 
your gifts, your money, your house, your family, the ground you stand on, the air you breathe, the fact that your heart's beating and your lungs are filling up with air are all owed to God. You exist because God says so. That's what Hebrews says. We are held up by the power of his word. If you've been around here for for a while, I'm fond of saying it the way Jonathan Edwards did. If God removed us from his thoughts for a second, we would cease to be. So what of yours is yours? If you put it in those terms, suddenly it's like, well, what did I do that I did on my own? Nothing. You're not your own. You belong to God. And we miss that so often and we buy into the idea that it's my stuff. And then we repeat those lies over and over and we do it on a global scale. This is our land or our country or our things and our stuff. And God sits on his throne above all of it and laughs. Isaiah says that. I didn't make that up. He actually says that. That God goes, rise of fall and nations. I'm in control of all this. And so we buy into that lie and we begin to think that it's my stuff and it's about me and what I do. And God's going, no, it's not. And I think what we start to see in a little glimpse here in Acts 2 and then here again in Acts 4 is the people begin to realize that they're not their own. This momentum of the church and what's happening, this movement that's taking place, they don't care about their stuff anymore. They start to go, well, let's sell this stuff and care for one another and love people and glorify God in everything we do. And you know what happens? Everybody's like, who are these crazy people and what are they doing? Right? This witness of what this looks like. And Luke tells us a couple different times, and this is what was happening. And you can go, man, that's a little bit crazy, but it says right in the middle there, and great grace was upon them all. It just reveals that lie that our stuff is what brings us joy and happiness because they didn't care about any of that. And there's this grace that's growing among them. And so you see this momentum and you get to the end of chapter five and it says, thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet. So they make this connection here. This guy, Barnabas, is going to become a pretty important guy as we go through the scripture. He's going to be kind of a right-hand man to Paul. God's going to use him in all these ways. But they nicknamed him Son of Encouragement. His name was Joseph, but they just called him like he's the encouraging guy. How awesome is that? Wouldn't you love to be known as that guy? They called Barnabas because he's just encouraging. And he sells all his stuff and he brings it. He sells his field and he lays it at their feet. But then the beginning of chapter five says, but a man named Ananias. And so notice that we've added chapter and verse, but this is all one thing flowing together, right? They're they're showing you Barnabas who sells the field, lays it at the apostles feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And, And so the the momentum we see is they're understanding that their stuff's not their own, that it's all about God. And they're making him the center of everything. And great grace is upon them. But then there's this problem that comes, this but. And this guy Ananias and his wife sell this piece of property, verse 2. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so here's this guy, Ananias and his wife and everybody selling and giving stuff away and meeting the needs and caring for one another. And they go, yeah, we're going to do that, too. And so they do. But instead of selling the land for a certain price and bringing the fullness of it, they bring part of it and say it's the fullness of it. So what's the problem here? What's the great issue that threatens this movement that's such a problem that that God inspired to have this story written down for us and tell us this right in the middle here? Is it that they should have sold all of it and given everything to the church and that's the problem? Is that the prerequisite to be part of God's church? Sell all your stuff and lay it together at the apostles' feet? No. In fact, Peter says you didn't have to give all your stuff. Right. He says that in verse four, he said, when it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So what's the issue? The guy was still really generous. Let's say he sold the land, just round numbers to help us. Let's say he sold the land for one hundred thousand dollars. And let's say he brought and gave fifty thousand to the church. But he says he gave a hundred. Or he says the 50 is what he sold it for. Right. He was still incredibly generous. He was still selling his land and bringing a great portion of it to the church. So what is the big problem here? The problem is that he lied about it. Now, you're going to see in just a second, we read it just a minute ago. You know what happens. He's about to fall down dead. And so what is the issue that he tells this lie? He kind of fudges the numbers to make himself look better. Why is that such a threat to the momentum and the movement of the church at this time? And I think the answer is it's a threat because it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. At a most foundational level, Ananias and Sapphira have missed the most important thing about the church. And I don't think I'm overstating that. They had a fundamental misunderstanding of what the good news of who God is and what he's done is. We say this every week, but the gospel is that you can't save yourself and God's done for you what you could never do for yourself. You cannot restore yourself to a holy, perfect God by what you do because you're not wholly perfect in and of yourself. And so Jesus comes and does what we could never do for us. He lives this life perfectly. He loves God and he loves people and he does every bit of it, keeping all of God's law. And then at the end of his life, when he deserves all the blessings, he says, I will take your curse of your sin upon myself and I will give you the blessings of my life. And through what Christ does in his sacrifice on our behalf is he dies and takes our sin upon himself and he raises again. He gives us this new life and he says, I'm going to redeem all of creation. It's the glorious good news of what God is doing. And it's all dependent on Jesus by faith, through grace and what Christ has done and nothing else. But yet here, they're not understanding that. Do you see why? 
You don't have to answer me, but I'm not really asking as a rhetorical question. I want to know, do you understand how this is a misunderstanding of the gospel? Because this is so important in our discipleship and our growth as believers and people who want to proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done, that we understand why this is such a misunderstanding of the gospel. Because what they were doing here is they came and they were giving, but then they're lying about it to make themselves look better. So instead of seeing themselves as righteous people because of what Christ has done, they're still seeing themselves as God's going to accept me by what I do. And I think that's evidenced by the fact that they're lying about it. They felt like it wasn't enough to give half of the money they made. Or it wasn't enough to give 10% or 20% or whatever the percentage they were giving. They had to lie and say they were giving it all. And what they were saying is they didn't understand that they're already accepted because of what Jesus has done. And they don't have to lie about it. Do you see how that's a complete misunderstanding of everything that we proclaim as Christians? And so at that moment, at this time in the church, and all of a sudden this happens. And there's this great momentum and they're sharing things and people out of an overflow. Right? He tells us with great grace was upon them all because they were seeing clearly the resurrection and what Jesus had done. And then all along comes Ananias and Sapphira. Like, we're going to lie about it to make ourselves look better. Do you see what a threat that is to the church at this time? It's a mixed message. It's actually the opposite of the gospel. That God accepts you by how good you are and how well you make yourself look. And so they've missed the picture. Instead of being a people who were freed from performance and they're, they're responding to God out of gratitude and grace of what he's done for themselves, they're feeling like they have to lie and show a better picture and put on a fake mask and say, look at me and look at what I've done. And so what happens? Peter says, why is it you've contrived This deed in your heart, you have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. He died. I was meeting with some guys the other night, some preaching Acts 5. Ananias and Sapphira, they die for lying. All right. (laughs) Want to come hear about this? Right? When we say that, we go, whoa, what is going on? After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Can you imagine being Sapphira? Wait, what? And then she dies. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and they buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. All right. Happy Father's Day. Have a good day. Right. You're like, whoa, 
they lied and then they died. And everybody's afraid. What do we make of that? How do we read that when we see that? Well, there's a couple things that we need to always place all of this in the fullness of Scripture. And so let me remind you. You are not your own. You belong to God. All sin, as Peter says here, clearly says here, all sin is against God. Yes, they were lying to Peter. Yes, they were lying to the church. But when we tell lies, what we're doing is we're ignoring that God has told us not to lie. Our sin is ultimately against God. But what is this? Why like this? There's all kinds of messed up people in the Bible. Actually, if we take it out to its fullest extent, I'm standing in a room full of liars. But yet we're all still alive. So what in the world is happening here? And if you're not a liar, you can come correct me later. I didn't mean to assume that. But I think I'm on safe ground to say that we're all liars to some degree or another. And yet we still have breath. And so what was God doing? It sure seems harsh. In fact, if you put it, take the whole thing. They not only sold the land, they gave a great portion of it to the church. And their sin was just lying about what they, how much they gave. And they died. And you go, what in the world? And I think part of it, when we put it in the scope of, of God's unfolding plan of redemption and where we are, this is at the very beginning of the church and there's this momentum and things are growing and there's great grace upon them and they're proclaiming that it's all Jesus and it's by grace and it's what he's done. And then all of a sudden there's these people that come in and they have the exact opposite of that and God stops them. I think God's protecting his church. At a vital time. And even as I say that, I know that doesn't go, okay, okay, no, it's all right, I got it. Still hard to hear. But I want you to put it in the scope of redemptive history and what it is. And what we're seeing here, and we don't like to think of it this way, is a miracle. They're found out and they're struck dead at that moment as soon as their lie comes to light. And God intervenes and this happens. They die. And we don't like to say miracle because we think of a miracle setting things right, good things happening. We think of chapter 3. Peter and John walking into the temple and the crippled man, they're lame since birth. And he sits there and they say, we don't have any money to give you, but in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the guy stands up and walks. And people praise God. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, what we said when we looked at that is we're seeing a fullness of God's kingdom coming in that moment. Because what Jesus has bought in his life and death and resurrection is not just our relationship with God, but it is the setting right of all things. That means removing disease. That means the crippled man now walking. It means setting all things right. And what I would say to you when we get to Acts chapter 5 is the same thing is happening. We're seeing for a moment the kingdom in its fullness. And you go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. The guy falls down dead. How is that the case? And the answer is this, that as in that moment God stops him, we're seeing exactly what the kingdom is going to be like when Jesus returns in fullness. There will be no lying. There will be no hiding of sin. All things will be revealed. 
All things will be seen as they are. And that's exactly what happens here. He stops the man's sin in his tracks in the moment and in his wife's tracks and he stops them and says, you're done. Judgment comes in that moment. And so here's the thing that I want us to see and want us to think about as God stops that in it. We often celebrate the miracle in chapter three and then we recoil at what's happening here in chapter five. There's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel and God's holiness and the way he sees sin and what Jesus has done for us. He saved us by no doing of our own, by grace, through faith. And when we mistakenly think that we can fudge the numbers or put on a fake act and now God will be pleased with us, he stops it here and he goes, no, that's not how this works. And he shows us what judgment looks like. So what seems like a small lie, right? They're just fudging how much they gave, but they still gave money. And God says, no. And he stops it right there and we go, whoa. And I tell you, part of our recoiling to that, if this is just a small lie, is our misunderstanding of the holiness of God. If God stopped them in their track and they die in the moment as someone who's going in to do a mass shooting, we'd say, praise God. That's evil and that's wrong. And we would see it for what it is. And we'd say, thank you, God, for stopping that. But when it's a lie, it's like, whoa, that seems out of proportion. And say, that's just uh, a witness to how far removed we are from our sin, how serious it is. So what is God teaching in this? What comes out of this? What happens when we see the fullness of this uh, story unfold? And so they carry her out and they bury her beside her husband. And then 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So is that it? If God so chooses, he can stop us in the moment in our sin, and that's the end. And so now we should be really afraid because he could do that at any time. Is that the lesson? Thankfully, no. I don't believe that's the lesson that God's teaching us. I think the misunderstanding that they had here was they didn't understand the gospel and they thought they could approach God on what they do rather than what Jesus has done. And it's scary to think about doing that. And I would go to so far as to say that if you think you can approach God based on your works and your record and how much money you give and what you do, that's a scary, scary place to be in. That great fear should be upon us if that's the way we're looking at it. But how do we take that? How do we take the fear of the Lord and how we look at that and we see this and it ends that way and we go, what do we do? And the answer is you cling to Jesus. It's all what Christ has done and nothing else. When you give or when you serve or when you love people or you do that, you do that out of an overflow of the grace that God has given you, not believing that you can somehow earn your worth with him. That's a lie. 
And at the very heart of it is that misunderstanding that I'm at the center, that somehow I can do this and I can make my way to God. I can't. It's only what Jesus does and nothing else. And anything else is misrepresenting who God is. Anything else is belittling the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he's done. If, if I think I can do it by what I do, then I'm saying what Jesus did is not enough. Or he didn't need to die and I can do it myself. And that's not true. And so when we think about fear coming upon us or the fear of the Lord or how we look at that, how should we see it? We should be scared of death, scared to death of thinking that we can approach God by what we do. And so I think what God was teaching is the importance of clinging to the gospel in this. Great grace upon the people and they're trusting in Christ and it's all about him and all their stuff is his and everything is about him. And then that little lie starts to make its way in that I can approach him by what I do. And we do the same thing all the time. We come into this place and we gather together and we all put on a good face and act like we got it all together. And we hide our sin and we pretend like we're good. Because if you really knew, then you'd be like, oh, man, it's he messed up. And at the bottom of that is a misunderstanding that somehow God looks at us the same way. But that's not true. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so I want to end here as we think about this, as you get to the end of that. And great fear came upon the church. And listen to what John writes in 1 John chapter 4. Right? John, who is there, who's seeing this, is there with Peter. See them together in all these episodes. I think we're on safe ground to say John was there and saw this unfolding. But listen to what he writes in 1 John chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and him in us because he's given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that God has sent his son Jesus to be the savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us that so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you hear what he's saying? You should be very fearful if you plan on standing before God by what you do. But if you are clinging to Jesus in his perfect love, it drives out all fear. And you know that you can stand before him, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. And you can rest in it. I think that's exactly what God was teaching them. His Ananias and Sapphira were trying to approach in another way. And he goes, it doesn't work this way. And I think when you put it in that terms and in those ways, in the fullness of Scripture and what it says, what we come out with is this, is that it's God's grace that he showed them this with Ananias and Sapphira. It doesn't work this way. I love you too much to let you go on thinking that it works like this. 
It has to be through Christ and what he's done and nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you saved us. That yet while we were sinners, that you died for us, that you've pursued us, that you open our eyes, that you show us, that you continue to come after us. And all we can say is thank you. I pray that you would help us to see afresh today that all that we have and all that we are and all that we will ever be is completely and totally owed to you. That we would be filled with the knowledge of your grace and all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.